following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. You know, it was several years ago, maybe, maybe well, more than several years ago now, where I worked with uh, a company, an organization that produced events. They did trade shows and special events and galas and banquets and fundraisers of all kinds for a variety of customers in South Florida and beyond. And one of the organizations that I got to work with was the Boys and Girls Club of Miami. I mean, just a great organization. They would do a lot, fundraisers and galas to raise money for the children of Miami-Dade County. Uh, but the privilege was that I also got to attend their events. I got to go to the events and kind of partake of what was going on. And I'll never re- forget, there's this one event. It was 1998 at the Hyatt Regency in downtown Miami. All right, so we're talking big hotel, uh, big ballrooms, hundreds and hundreds of people are going to be attending this fundraiser. And now what they would do is they would often invite professional athletes to join them at their events and help them raise money and gain attention, all that kind of thing. So being involved in this event, knowing that it was coming and being a part of it, I had the guest, guest list. So I was really excited because I knew the uh, Major League Baseball players that were being invited to attend that event. So they had some players coming from the Florida Marlins at the time. They had some coming from other Major League Baseball teams, and there were going to be some players there from the New York Yankees. Being a Yankees fan, I mean, I was really excited about that. I mean, I knew who was going to be there. So Tino Martinez was there. A-Rod was there. Some of you remember the pitcher El Duque. He was there also. But there was one athlete. There was one particular athlete that, that I wanted to meet. Now, now, this particular athlete with the Yankees, I mean, his, his career with them is storied. I mean, he certainly stands among the greats of the Yankee players. I mean, his, his career is a virtual highlight reel of baseball plays. The feats of, of this captain, Derek Jeter, are legendary. I mean, like, look, he was the man, like, for 15 years, 15 seasons at the New York Yankees. And he was going to be there, and I was excited about it. I was prepared. I had with me my 1996 Sports Illustrated magazine with Jeter on the cover. So for this particular event, I was ready to go. And, and actually, the blessing was my wife was able to attend with me. And at that time, she was pregnant with our son, Ian. And uh, so I sat, I sat her down and said, okay, Munyaka, here's the battle plan. This is what we're going to do. Um, there, there's a VIP reception, and we will be in that reception. Um, and you've got the camera. I've got the Sharpie and the magazine. You're going to take a picture of me while, he, while Derek Jeter and I, both of us together, are signing the magazine. Perfect. And look, everybody's going to get out of the way for a pregnant woman. So you just start walking. People will start moving. It was a good plan. And I was right behind her. So that's exactly what happened. The event started. Jeter makes his appearance. Nuria, like a fullback, goes through the middle, and I'm bobbing and weaving behind her, and we get to Derek Jeter and uh, introduce myself and say, man, I, I would love for you to sign my magazine. Graciously, he, he was signing it. Nuria's standing with the camera, getting bounced around by 100 people. She snaps a picture. Jeter signs the magazine, and we're off. That took like all of maybe three minutes, right? So I, I went. I said, let me see the camera. Let me see the picture. So I'm looking at the camera, and it's all Derek Jeter. Like, like, I'm not in the photograph. I know, right? I'm not in the photograph at all. So then, then I looked at the magazine, and he signed the magazine, but when he gave it back to me, apparently the cuff of his Armani suit just kind of brushed ever so, right? <laughs> ever so slightly across the magazine. And it was actually, here's a picture of the, the sports. So there it is, and that's my magazine. You can see his signature there in the middle, and you can't maybe detect the blurred spots, but they're there. Um, so look, we, we had a fantastic time at the event. I mean, I, we, it was a great time meeting him, shaking his hand, getting to know him just for a moment. And just even for weeks after that, I was telling people, yeah, we were down at the Hyatt. We had dinner with Jeter. It was, it was pretty good. And we were just bragging about that as I was telling people, right? I mean, here's the thing. 
I know a lot about Derek Jeter. I mean, I know a lot about him. He was born in New Jersey, moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan, where he became one of the best baseball players ever. He was drafted in the sixth round in 1992 by the New York Yankees. Five Gold Glove Awards, five Silver Slugger Awards, five World Series rings, 13 appearances in the All-Star Game. Man, the man has a 351 batting average in the World Series. The first player to hit a home run in November. I mean, I know a lot about Derek Jeter. But here's the thing. I don't know Derek Jeter. <laughs> like, 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 I don't know him. If I were to run into him in the street or cross paths, I'd be like, hey, Derek, remember me, Frank, the Hyatt downtown? He would have no clue. I might get tackled by one of his security guards, probably even a restraining order in my future, but but he would have no clue who I am. As Christians, and even non-Christians, we think we know Jesus and the message of Christ better than we actually do. I mean, we, we have some ideas, and we know some facts, and maybe we can even tell some stories. But there is a fundamental misunderstanding or lack of understanding of Jesus and his message. So the question is, what are we missing about the message of Jesus? And that's an important question. It's an important question because the answer to that changes everything. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18 today. So as you're making your way to Luke chapter 18, that's the third gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Um, Luke is a faithful um, a historical and, and a writer. He's, he's a faithful author. He writes a very meticulous gospel. He's a historian and a doctor. And uh, he went so far as to conduct interviews with, with individuals that had firsthand experience with Jesus. So he put together for us a very faithful uh, New Testament document. And that's what the gospels are, by the way, the life and times of Jesus. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 18. And there, Luke begins to tell us that Jesus is teaching a particular audience by use of parables. Now, in that chapter, there's actually two parables. We're going to be in one of them. But a parable, again, is is just a short story that's designed to teach a specific truth, a basic truth, fundamental truth about the Christian faith. So Jesus is talking to this audience, and, and, and he's teaching them by way of these parables. And, you know, look, if you want to know what the Christian faith, what, what, what Christianity is all about. If, if you want to know how the message of Jesus is so very different from every other religious message on the planet, then you're going to want to hear the words of Jesus in this text in chapter 18. So Luke chapter 18, we're going to be in verses 9 through 14, the, kind of the front end of, of that chapter. So if you would meet me there, I'm going to read the text, the first verses, and then we're going to go backtrack and we're going to go through the verses and see how very different Jesus' message is from every other thing they've heard then and what we're hearing today. So Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. You with me? All four of you. Fantastic. Chapter 18, verse 9. I'll start reading for us. He told the parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. I mean, Jesus wants us to see the striking and startling nature of the difference of his message. 
So now Luke starts in verse 9. And in verse 9, he begins to give us some context here. So he begins to kind of frame the event for us. And we, we understand that the people Jesus is speaking to are the religious leaders of the day. Right? They, are, they are the religious elite. They're the ones who, who, who know the scriptures. They're, that's his audience that day. And Luke says something in particular about these people that Jesus is speaking to. He says that these religious leaders trusted in themselves. They trusted in themselves and in their righteousness. In other words, they trusted in themselves to be good enough. They trusted in themselves to be holy enough, to work hard enough, to whatever it is they do and do not do, to gain God's approval because they are good enough. They trusted in themselves. And in addition to trusting in themselves, they looked down, they looked on with contempt at others. So the ones that, that weren't doing what they do or weren't doing it as well as they do it, they were looking down on those people. It's important for us to, to kind of see this contrast. And, and that's not so foreign of a concept for us, is it? I mean, in the world that we live in today, you're inundated with that message. From birth to death, you're told, man, man you're good enough. You're in control. You can do this. You just need to work hard. You need to produce, and then we'll be pleased. I mean, that's the message that we hear in the war world and in the culture around us. In sports, all the time. You produce on the pitch. You produce on the field, on the court, and you're going to be accepted and praised by athletes and coaches alike. In the classroom, you produce academically, and you're going to be accepted, and you're going to be made a big deal of by, by all of academia, professors and teachers, and get scholarships, and the whole thing. And Jesus begins to instruct them. I mean, they were delusional about the fact we live under this delusion that we're in control, that we are good enough, that what we do is sufficient on our own. We don't need anybody else. We don't need any help. We got this. I mean, that's like a Nike commercial, right? Just do it. We got it. Jesus begins to teach these people and instruct them that there's something so very different about their relationship with God and how that's approached. And he begins to instruct them in this way. See, maybe, maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, or, or you're a new Christian, or perhaps you're even a skeptic and you're here today, and, and you're like, I don't know about this religious thing, and I don't have a relationship with Jesus, and I don't know how that works. And that's fine, but, but maybe we, we struggle in our relationships, we struggle in our conversations about Jesus, we struggle in our own faith, perhaps, because we just don't have a firm grasp on the message of Jesus. I mean, so often the world rejects Christianity so often, we, they, we look at Jesus as, uh, we, we dismiss and discard him as an old, archaic, irrelevant teacher because we don't understand the message of Jesus. This parable centers around two men. One, who's trusting in himself. One, who's, who's look, I'm going to do this and not do this. I'm good enough and I don't need God. I don't need anybody's help. I'm going to do this. Therefore, he will accept me. He's delusional about who God is. The other is now relying upon himself, but he's relying upon God. He's trusting in God. He's, he's going to God. And God, I, I can't, but, but you can. And in verse 10, we begin to see Jesus now show the comparison to his audience of these two people. Verse 10, we get the comparison of the two individuals. Verse 11, we get the comparison of their approach. That's gonna be key when we get there. But check this out. Jesus now, remember his audience, he's speaking to the religious leaders, he's speaking to the religious people who should know better, and he begins to give them, teach them this story about these two men. One of them, and neither one of these, by the way, are liked by anyone. Neither one of these men are liked by anybody. Neither one of them, they, they're both longing for something. They're both longing for something more. They're going about it quite a different way, but they're longing for God, both of them. And the first one that we hear is the Pharisee. Now, the Pharisee, it, that's, um, that's the most religious of the day, right? That's, that's the religious elite in, in Judaism. Um, that, that's who that person is. They, they were called even the guardians of the law. 
And what they would do is they would take the law, the, the law that, was, that God gave to Moses and Moses gave to the people, they would take the law and they would add to it. They would add rules and they would add regulations and they would add more laws and they would heap them on the people in an effort to please God. And their relationship with God was all about rules, ability, and performance. That was their relationship with God. I mean, welcome to the religion of human performance, right? But the tax collector, very different person. Now, he wasn't liked by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, he was hated. They were considered devious and deceptive and greedy. The Romans hated the tax collectors because they were Jewish. The Jews hated the tax collectors because what the Jews do would take, their, they would, the tax collectors would take money from their brothers and sisters, put some in their pocket, and give the rest to the enemy. So these, these were not liked at all. They were quite different. And not only that, they were the exact opposite. One who's, who's, who's relying upon himself to do what needs to be done, to be good enough, to work hard enough, to gain acceptance, to achieve acceptance by God. The other begins to rely upon God. And this comparison is really significant for understanding this passage, so don't let it pass you by because God is going to resist one and he's going to embrace the other. So now in verse 11, of the text, we see the comparison of their approaches. Look with me, verse 11, there in the text, in chapter 18, Luke writes in verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So we begin to see the comparison of these two. And the first one that's given to us is the, the Pharisee. Now, and notice something with me about the self-righteousness of, of, of what he's doing. Now, both of them go to the temple to pray, but these prayers are, are as far apart as you can possibly get, right? His prayer, notice the focus is all about him. In this prayer, he has five times he uses the first person singular pronoun, I. I, 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 I. I mean, do we have a problem with that? I mean, it's, it's just a little prideful, this, this, the self-righteousness of his prayer. And he starts off with this saying, God, I thank you that I am not like. So by the way, he's thanking God for himself. Like, like he's thanking God that he's not like, that he's thanking God for himself. It's just a bit prideful. And, and he starts off thanking God with his list of don'ts. So he puts together this, this list of the things that he doesn't do. God, I thank, I thank you that I'm not, I'm not extortioner. I'm not unjust, and I'm not an adulterer. So he's thanking God for, the, for these things that he doesn't do. Look, look, I don't steal, I don't lie, and I don't go with girls that do. And I don't do those things. So he's actually got a little checklist out of the things he doesn't do. Now, I know at West Pines, we love our checklist here, but, but that's not a good one, all right? He goes to God with his list of accomplishments. That's how he approaches God. And, you know, we, we, we see this approach, and we see what he's doing, and we recognize, man, the, the prideful attitude that's there. Tax collector is quite a bit different. If we see, we're going to get to him in verse 13 in just a few moments. But in verse 12, in verse 11, he continues this self-righteous list of the things he does not do. His religion is all about himself. It, it, his religion is surrounded by and built up by himself and his pride and the things that he's able to accomplish and how proficient he's able to do them. And there's a problem with that. The problem is kind of the Bible. <laughs> the New Testament gives us a different picture of that. In James chapter 4, verse 6, God says, look, I, I, I resist the proud. I, I oppose the one who says, God, I got this. I, I don't need you. I can do this. I just need to work a little harder. I need to do a little more. And therefore, as I'm good enough, you will accept me. That's, that, that's, that's a prideful 
a relationship. That is, that is a, um, a practice issue. That is not a gospel issue. So we see that in James, and that, he resists that, but God gives grace to the humble. He shows favor to the one who says, no, no, God, I can't, but you can. I'm, I'm turning for myself, and I'm putting my trust in you. I'm seeking you. I'm coming to you because I trust in what you can do. God gives grace. He shows favor to that one. And in verse 11, then, we begin to see the, the two approaches. Now, so we've compared, um, in 10, we've compared the two men. In 11, we compare the two approaches. And in 12, we see the second half of the prayer of the Pharisee. So, all right, he, he's not done yet. He gave God his list of don'ts, right? Now he's going to give God his list of do's. So these are the things that I do not do to gain your acceptance, but these are the things that I do. So surely we look, we sit back and we look and we go, oh, okay, well then these are the things that we must do then to become Christians, to be Christians. I've got to do these things. I've got to perform these practices and then I'll be a Christian. Well, nothing could be further from the truth of the Christian message. Nothing can be further from the truth of the Christian message. And this is what the Pharisee does. He says, well, you know, I'm going to give you my top two. I want to put down the top two things that I do to perform so that God will accept me. The first thing I do is I fast. And I don't fast once a week. I fast twice a week. And, and I tithe. I give tithes of all that I have. So certainly fasting for, for a, a spiritual need, fasting to grow a relationship with God, fasting to, to get through a season in your life, fasting to build your relationship with God, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. And tithing, giving back to God a portion of what he's already given you for the work of the kingdom, certainly those things aren't bad. In fact, we would encourage you to engage in those spiritual disciplines. We would encourage you to engage in worship in those ways. The problem with the Pharisee is that he wears it like a spiritual badge. You know, he puts a neon billboard on the roadside for all the world to see how holy he is and for God to see how good he is. That's the essence of religion. External, superficial, and insignificant to the message of the cross, insignificant to the gospel. You see, Jesus doesn't come with and, and say his message is not more religion, more, more, more doing. You just perform these things, check off those boxes, do this list, and then you will be. No, no, no. His message is quite the opposite, quite the contrary. It's radically different, altogether different than that. It's, it's not something that you can do or have done. It's something that's been done. I mean, that's the message. So, so we come this morning, and, and maybe, you know, maybe you're, you, you've been walking with Jesus for many years. Or maybe you're just starting in your relationship with Christ. And again, you could be a skeptic here this morning. I, I don't know this religious thing. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with Jesus. And, and we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. We want you to know that what separates Christianity from every other man-made religious-based system is that the God in heaven has, out of his abundant grace, done something for you. He's done something for you. You see, you cannot ascend. We cannot ascend to God. You can't check off enough boxes, do enough good things, be proficient enough in religious exercises to um, get awarded God's attention, to, to gain God's acceptance. That's religion. That's not the gospel. That's every other man-made religious system that, that you perform this way, that you do these duties, that you engage in these practices, and that deity, that false god will be pleased. That's religion. That's not the gospel. Your self-worth is not wrapped up in your ability to perform spiritual exercises. Your identity 
is not bound up in your moral achievements or moral accomplishments or accomplishments of any kind. Look up here, look right at me. This is so crucial. You are not accepted by God because of what you do or do not do. You are accepted by God because of something he's already accomplished. He's already done. But God has pursued us with an everlasting love. I mean, the Bible will put it this way. In Romans 5, verse 8, it says, but, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, this, this is the God of heaven. This is the creator and sustainer of all the cosmos who chooses to send the second person of the Trinity from the throne room of heaven to be born of the Virgin Mary, to live a perfect life as Jesus the Christ, to go headfirst, unashamedly, undeservedly, unjustly to that horrific cross where he will hang there paying for the sins of mankind, whereby he will absorb man's sin and he will assuage the wrath of God. And in those dying moments, as he heaves on that cross, he declares in victory with whatever breath he has left, it is finished, right? The work of salvation is done. The work that needs to be done for, for man and God to have a relationship again united has been completed. Jesus has brought peace between man and God because of his work on the cross. And three days later, as the scriptures beautifully declare, God raises him from the dead in spectacular defeat of Satan, of sin, and of death. Religion doesn't say that. The gospel says that. I mean, the gospel, religion says, Lord, Lord, look what I've done for you. Look at all that I've done for you. The gospel says, look, look what I've done for you, son, daughter. Jesus is turning religion on its head. He's obliterating the concept. And now we get to look at verse 13, which is the, the prayer of the tax collector. So verse 11 and 12 encompass the prayer of the Pharisee, right? But now we're going to see something quite a bit different. Look with me at verse 13 there in the text. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the tax collector, now we, we see, now watch how Jesus frames this to this audience that he's, that he's telling this story to and he's framing it for us as well. The tax collector approaches God, but he approaches God at a distance. He approaches God far off. Now the Pharisee, of course, he's always got the best seat in the house, always front row center in the temple, probably got a little brass nameplate there. But the tax collector, he's approaching God from a distance empty-handed as it were. The one who's maligned and looked down upon can't even bring up his eyes to heaven. You know, when my son Ian, when, when he was a child, when he was a little boy and he did something wrong or, or he made a mistake or he did something inappropriate, I mean, I'd have to correct him, right? So I would discipline him and I'd take him to his room and we'd close the door and we'd sit on the bed or we'd sit on the floor and he knew he was wrong. He knew that what he'd done was not right. And more often than not, he couldn't even bring his eyes to look me in the face. I mean, there was head hung low, staring at the floor. He knew he was wrong. One of the other translations, which I think is really interesting, of this same verse says, the tax collector dared not lift his eyes. You see, the tax collector knows something about himself here. I mean, the Pharisee has no clue about what this is, but, but the tax collector knows something. What does the tax collector know about himself? Think with me. You don't have to guess. 
Jesus gives it to us in verse 13. He says it right here, that the tax collector couldn't bring his eyes to heaven, would beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, there's, there's a, uh, he's, he's approaching God with a sense of humility. He's approaching God with a sense of need, with a sense of, I, I, I'm not right before him. He's not applauding himself, well done, Frank. No, no, he's minimizing himself. He is making an appeal to God. That's, that's what we're seeing Jesus teach this audience, that this sinner, that this tax collector, the one who's looked down upon, is making an appeal to God. See, the Pharisee approaches God, the religious guy approaches God with great arrogance. The tax collector, the sinner, approaches God with great penitence. I mean, there's, there's an awareness of his sin. There's a recognition of his, his great need for God's abundant grace. You know what this is a picture of? It's a picture of repentant faith. It's a picture of, man, I've got this. I don't need you, God. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to do some things. I'm going to not do other things. And I'm going to be that good at it that you're going to accept me. And it's, it's turning away from that sin. It's turning away saying, God, no, I, I can't, but you can. I need you. I'm putting my faith in you. I'm putting my trust in you. I'm asking for your forgiveness. That's a picture of repentant faith. And that leads to the gospel. You see, it's, it's a right understanding of who we are and a right understanding of who God is. That we are the spiritual, blind, poor, broken, in desperate need of God's grace. But he is the Lord God glory enthroned in heaven who has done something about our sin and about our difficulty and about our person through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the comparison that we begin to see take place in these verses. And, and as we look through verse 13, we, we, we trust in, in the fact that the, God's, the, the sinner says, the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me. And in the, actually, in that statement, in the original language, it's a bit more forceful. It's a bit more emphasis. There is a definite article. It's, it's God, be merciful to me, the sinner, not a sinner. And it's right there in that spot, right in that space where, where, where God's at work. So even for you and I this morning, as, as we turn from trusting ourselves and turn to put our trust in God, as we turn from trying to do things on our own and please God by our effort and by our work and by the things we think we are good at, and we put our trust in him to do what needs to be done in us and through us, as we do that, God is at work in that space. He's at work in that place. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And now Jesus begins to close out. I mean, like, like a good attorney, he begins to summarize his argument now and he begins to close out his teaching. Keep in mind the audience, keep in mind the religious leaders and the religious people that he's speaking to. And he begins to kind of close out his teaching in verse 14. Look with me at what it says in verse 14 there, chapter 18. I tell you this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus begins to tell him now, okay, the, the Pharisee, the one who was so proud of the things he does, the one who was so proud of, of, of how good he is and how good he, everybody sees he is at what he does, that one leaves the temple without God's approval. But the sinner, but the, but the one who's so bent over who he is and, and puts his trust in God and seeks God, that one, leaves the temple with God's favor. <gasps> Imagine that the Pharisees probably sucked the air out of the room at, at that conclusion. But, but this is what Jesus is saying, that, that the sinner has been justified, has been made right 
with God. Now, now this word justified is such an important term. It is such a significant word. Highlight it, circle it, underline it, whatever you want to do. But this word is a legal term, not just important for this text, but really the whole concept of New Testament. This, this word is a legal term, which means to be made right with God. Okay, so, so a person who, who puts their trust in God, who puts their faith in Christ, is thereby given a new standing before God. All right, so you can never be justified. You can never be made right with God for being proficient and excelling at spiritual practices. You can't. A person is made right with God based on their faith in Jesus. And that's James chapter four, verse six. A person is made right with God based on their faith in Jesus. I'm sorry, Galatians 2, chapter two, verse six. But, but this concept, justification by faith, justifying, becoming a right with God before him because of faith is all over the New Testament. I mean, this is Habakkuk 2.4. This is in the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, verse 7. In Galatians chapter 2 and chapter 3. This is such a significant concept. And Jesus is saying, um, you know, don't, don't look to yourselves. Don't look to what you can do. Look to me. Don't, don't trust in yourselves. Don't trust in your effort. Don't trust in how proficient you think you are. Trust in me. That's what Jesus is saying to this audience. And here's the irony of the passage. One of the ironies of the passage is that the Pharisee's right at one point. He's not like the other men. The tax collector, the tax collector is the one, the sinner is the one who's set apart. He's the one who's been made right by God, not because of what he's done or not done, but because he's put his trust in the one who has done. And this is great news for us. This is, this is fantastic news for us because yes, yes we're all broken. None of us are good enough. Not a single one of us can work hard enough, check off enough boxes, or, or, or get to a place where we have earned God's acceptance and God's love. None of us. And you know what that means, right? Well, that means that we can stop pretending to have to be better than the next guy to gain God's acceptance. We can stop pretending to put the trust in ourselves, the work in ourselves, the effort in ourselves, and we can take that and put our trust in God. You see, and this is the beautiful gospel. The message of the gospel is the remedy that, that, that fixes all of that nonsense. It fixes all of that what's broken and it gives us a picture of what it is that God has done for us through his son, Jesus. You see, at the end of the day, we're all one or two of these guys. Proud or humble? Boasting or confessing? Justified or not? And the tax collector, the tax collector is now, he's putting his trust in God, he's, he's saying, okay, I can't, but, but, but God, you can. I'm going to put my trust in you. I'm going to rely upon you. I'm coming to you because I put my trust in you. He's depending on God. Whom are you depending on today? I mean, if you're, if you're putting your trust in your effort, if you're putting a trust in, in, in how good you are and how many good things you can do and how much work you can do and how many times you go to church and how many appearances you make here and how much help you give over there, if you're putting your trust in those efforts, if you're relying upon earning and striving to earn God's love, well then, it's no wonder we're pushing Jesus away. It's no wonder we're confusing the message of the gospel and not able to share and confusing other people with that message because that's not the gospel. That's religion. And Jesus says that the, the gospel is what he has done for us in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And putting our trust and putting our faith in that is, is, is what works and what fills our heart and what leads us and what, what breaks down barriers and what pushes us from behind and what lifts us up from a, a, underneath and what for, cover us, covers us from above. It's, it's, it's what the work that Christ has done for us. 
See, the gospel beautifully depicts that for us. and says, yeah, you're, you're um, accepted by God. That's been earned, but it's been earned by Jesus Christ. It hasn't been earned by you or anybody or anything else. It's been earned by Christ. The beautiful gospel gives us that and depicts that for us. So as we consider where we are and, and, and you know, wherever, however you arrived here today, however you came in through the door, if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, if you like Christ, if you don't like Christ, if you're here as a skeptic, however you arrived here today, let us not get the message of Jesus wrong any longer. Let us understand that you're accepted by God, not because of your work for him, but because of your trust and faith in him. And this morning, all of us have an opportunity to, to do what the tax collector did. I mean, we see, we all have to get to the place where we, where we go, I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm, I'm not strong enough. And God, I, I, I do need you. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We all have to get to that place. And this morning, as we close our time together, we're gonna have a time of prayer together, but I wanna be able to, to reach out to you and say, listen, this, this is a time for you to consider this. This is a time, if you don't walk with Christ, if you don't have a relationship with him, I mean, there is no hope in your effort. There is no hope and salvation in the work that you do, no matter how proficient you may be at it. The only hope is found in what Christ has already accomplished and done on the cross. And that's for you, and that's for me. And today we're going to pray and you can reach out to God and you can cry out to him and you can do exactly what the tax collector has done. God, be merciful to me. I need you. I can't, but you can. So I'm putting my trust in you. And for those of us who have done that already, man, may this rekindle the fire in your heart to say, man, I'm continuing to trust in Jesus. I am my walk and my day. I, I put my feet on the ground trusting in Christ. So this morning I would ask, go ahead, let's close our eyes and bow our heads as we close our service. And you can pray and reach out to God in this way. Just pray with me. And I would encourage you, this prayer will not save you. It's the confession of your mouth that Jesus is Lord and the belief in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. That will save you. Pray with me, Father. And I, I need you. I trust you and I'm coming before you saying I've done it wrong and I've put my faith and my trust in myself and in other people and other things. But I come before you and I ask you to save me, Lord Jesus. I put my trust in what you have done, your life-saving death and your heaven-opening resurrection for me, for my sin. And I put my trust in that. And I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.